and welcome to episode 155 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the Autumn Astronomy Edition. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars and uh, and looking up. Uh, well, uh, when this podcast comes out, Shane, it will be the first full day of autumn. Yeah, yeah, it'll be officially the fall. Yeah, the autumnal equinox is on September 22nd. So now the, the equinox is when we have the equal day and night. I think, I think that's how it works, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. I believe, I believe that's right. That's what I, uh, that's what I tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so we have, we have two of those a year. We have one in March and we have one in September and that marks the time when we're going to have uh, more night than day, which is usually a point that normal people aren't looking forward to. But as amateur astronomers, we, uh, we, we embrace the coming of the dark. Yeah, my, my wife shakes her head at me every, every fall when I get excited for early darkness. But um, it is true. You know, it's, it's great for us astronomers. Uh, we can get so much more observing done. And uh, the best part of it is like, you know, I can get way more done during the week because I don't have to stay up late and then be tired for work. Um, you know, this time of yeah. the year, I like eight thirty. you know, well, heck by eight o'clock, you know, I can easily observe the planets, uh, if there's any up and then, uh, by eight thirty, I can start getting into all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, I see sunset is, uh, is seven o'clock. I think tomorrow night, uh, or Monday night. And, and by the time this goes live, we'll be, uh, you know, sunset will be uh, before uh, 7 p.m. So, I mean, you know, like you're right, you know, when sunset happens, Jupiter and Saturn are sitting there. You can uh, get on those pretty quick. Venus is is on the uh, western horizon. You can get some observing it on that and uh, do uh, an hour on those and you're standing in a dark spot all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I love it. You know, the mosquitoes and other bugs disappear. Um, and, um, you, you don't necessarily need like the super heavy jackets and insulation to stay warm either. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true for sure. So, so with that, um, and I actually started teaching my, uh, astronomy class. I think it's this week or next. I actually think it's next week for some reason. It's a little bit later. And I think I'm doing, uh, six or eight weeks or two, four week sessions or something like that. I'll, I'll figure it out as, as the date uh, gets closer and kind of preparing my materials now. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I got up and I was observing uh, Orion in the morning. I had a look at uh, the M42 Nebula uh, before I went to work one day. It was kind of kind of weird to think about observing that at the end of summer. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. And, uh, and that's, you know, we've talked about this too before, but that's another nice thing about fall is, uh, if we stay up late or wake up early, um, we can see a lot of the winter constellations starting to take shape and, uh, observe those in far warmer temperatures than what we'll be experiencing in the next few months. Yeah. There's some sort of poem, uh, I can't, can't remember who wrote it, but, uh, or what it's about exactly. I should, I should have looked it up, but I suppose it doesn't matter. In, in that poem, they talk about Orion throwing his uh, leg uh, above uh, dawn's eastern sky, uh, eastern horizon, I, I suppose, because as, as Orion's rising, um, you know, in sort of the wee hours, 
these days. It does kind of look like he, he first throws a leg up. You sort of see uh, the shoulder come up and then the head and then uh, one of the legs comes up next. It's sort of like he's, he's sort of uh, coming up over that, uh, over that wall, you know, he's sort of, you know, breaching the, the horizon. It's, uh, you know, kind of, kind of an apt uh, way of, way of looking at, uh, at that constellation this time of year. Hmm. I've never thought about that, but yeah, that that's very cool. It's so true. It does like with the angle as it's coming up for sure, it would represent that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it I kind of had noticed this a bit. I don't know whether I noticed it and then, and then had read the poem or, or, or vice versa. Um, and it's commonly referenced, I think in, in many, uh, in many observing books, they, they will reference the poem and even write it out or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to recite poetry here. Not, not for you. Not today. Oh, gee, I'm, I'm hurt. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we did have, uh, a little bit of a preview of the, uh, of the autumn sky though. Um, and maybe even the winter sky, uh, a little bit. Cause, um, when I was looking at what we observed, um, you know, I guess a couple of weeks ago now, by the time this comes out, um, but you and I looked at, uh, at the Andromeda Nebula and the double cluster and the Alpha Persei cluster and, uh, and M45. And, and I was thinking, well, I sort of, sort of put that, put that on here, but, uh, you know, M, uh, M45 is more like a winter constellation, I think, but I don't know, sort of, sort of, uh, something that does rise in the, in the autumn sky, we start seeing it. It's at a nice point above the, uh, Eastern Northeastern horizon. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good point. You know, it is, I think it is listed as like a winter object, but, um, I like, I have always associated that with the fall because that's when I, you know, I start to see it and, uh, that's when I start to observe it too. Like we were looking at it uh, a couple of weeks ago out at your place. Um, it was pretty low in the sky, but, um, yeah, I always think of that more as a, a fall object. Yeah. One, one constellation I like to look at, um, just as a constellation in itself. And I, I sort of think of this constellation is as sort of central to the, uh, autumn sky, how, how we have the, the summer triangle as, as the sort of, uh, late spring and throughout the summertime and still visible now, but how we have that as, as sort of the large pattern, uh, to guide us during the warmer months as we get into these uh, cooler autumn months, um, I like to think of that central figure as the uh, as the great square of Pegasus. I'm not what I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that though. Yeah, yeah. Once you see the great square and become familiar with it, you you don't unsee it when you look up at the sky. It becomes you know a very prominent. Um, uh, what's the right word here? Sort of like guide guide stars or guide asterism to uh, to the night sky. Yeah, it, it is a little tough to see the first time because kind of like the uh, summer triangle, um, it's really, really big. You know, it stretches, I don't know, like I think like 25 degrees aside. And it is it is very much just like a, almost like a perfect square. And the stars inside the square, well, the, the main stars of the square are actually fairly bright. I think they're around uh, close to first magnitude and then second magnitude for the others. Um but uh, but the center of, of the square has has sort of fainter and fainter uh, stars. You can see a small handful, but uh, you know you have to get to dark sites before you can sort of fill in um, 
many of the stars in and around it. So it really does make uh, make a nice guidepost, especially for for people that are observing uh, under sunlight pollution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The other thing with the Great Square of Pegasus is not only just does it look like a giant square, but Pegasus is supposed to be a horse. And boy, I don't know. I, I don't really see the source. I think it's supposed to be like an upside down horse even. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's tough. I, I don't know if I see that either. Um, maybe an upside down horse. Uh, kind of. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a weird one. Um, you know, some of these constellations become very obvious what they are, but this is one of them that to me, you know, you, you need the drawing associated with it to really see it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that's why we just uh, really talk about having, uh, you know, uh, a very basic pattern, you know, something like the uh, a large square is much, much easier, I think, for people to to relate to. And typically when I point it out, they can see it. But one of the uh, the great parts about the, the, the giant square there is um, the top left or the north uh, eastern star is part of the constellation of Andromeda. And what you can do there is you can use that star to kind of guide you. You can sort of follow a stream of stars out and then another stream of stars up. And then that will get you to um, M31, the uh, Andromeda galaxy, which is super cool to see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, the, uh, the Andromeda um, like a, under a dark sky, once you learn where that is and, and you just make it, I observe it, it's incredible how large it really is. And I think when you look through a telescope, like obviously we're used to field of views and all of that, but I lose context as to how big things really are in the night sky when I'm looking through a telescope, because all I see is that field of view through the eyepiece. But when you see the Andromeda galaxy in relation to everything else, just naked eye, it's, it's really quite astonishing how large it is. Yeah. I think it's around like four degrees or so, or, or close to it. And, uh, certainly in my, uh, four inch, my widest field of view is, is not quite four degrees. And it, uh, from my site here, which is, which is a reasonably dark site, but not like a super dark site, um, you can actually see see it stretching pretty much right, right to the edge of the field in my in my lowest power widest field. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful sight. You know, there's I, I do I do enjoy observing new objects whenever I go out. However, there's you know a number of objects that I love looking at, no matter how many times I've seen it. And of course, Andromeda is one of them. Yeah. Now, one of the things that that I think sometimes people are kind of surprised at when, uh, when they come observing with, with me, even if they've, you know, a lot of the time people take my class and we talk about all this stuff. And then, you know, like this summer, I think there was two or three people that I met up with and uh, they're really surprised how, you know, I could just kind of wield the scope around and, and just sort of point it at a seemingly random spot in the sky and say, Oh, this is going to be whatever. And, and uh, pretty much I can do that with a wide, super wide field of view or a finder scope and, and kind of put it uh, on one of one of these uh, one of these objects. We'll we'll talk about here today. But um, you know, finding these objects and kind of I want to say memorizing, kind of learning how to to find them based on the star patterns. I think is uh, is sort of a really key thing um, to getting a lot of enjoyment 
uh, out because a lot of nights, you know, you'll, you'll go out and you'll just want to cruise around the sky and take a look at a handful of things, maybe 12 or 20 things. And it's, it's nice to kind of have those sitting sort of in, in the back of, of your mind. And typically many of us will, uh, will kind of commit these, these patterns or, or the paths to these, um, these deep sky objects uh, like galaxies, nebulas, and star clusters uh, to mine. So, so I was wondering, do you, do you have a, have an easy way of finding that? Now, some people like me, we come off the great square and run up um, Andromeda. Uh, but some people use uh, Cassiopeia. And I was just wondering, are, are you one of those people who use Cassiopeia to, to find the Andromeda galaxy? No, I, I do use um, like those two guide stars essentially in, in Pegasus and then just go up from there. They, they basically draw a straight line up. So I, I, I find that to be the easiest. Yeah, I agree. I do find that, um, I'm glad you said that because I find that more newcomers, for whatever reason, they tend to want to use Cassiopeia. And I think that's tougher. I think it's much easier to learn that great square pattern and then um, to learn that outline of, uh, of those two streams of Andromeda, sort of like a north stream and a south stream. And then, and then you, you come out two stars and then you find those two pointer stars that go straight up. And then there's kind of like a star that jogs hard to the left or to the east or northeast. And, uh, but, you, but you sort of keep, uh, keep right of that and, and, it, and it's sitting there. And from a dark site, you can just see it as a glowing cloud. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it works well for me, that's for sure. Yeah, cool. So in, in Cassiopeia though, one thing, you know, one thing I've been uh, meaning to, uh, to take a look at is the uh, Pac-Man uh, Nebula. Have you ever, have you ever looked at this uh, Pac-Man Nebula up there? It's NGC uh, 281. It's uh, an emission nebula. Hmm. Was that part of your Wide Field Wonders uh, article a few years ago when we observed, I don't know, a whole bunch of const or a whole bunch of objects up in Cassiopeia? Can't well, I, yeah, we did. We we observed that one for uh, for the handbook article mm -hmm. on on Cassiopeia. Yeah, we we took a look at uh, at that one, and it's kind of kind of sits up there, sort of just uh, to the southwest of uh of cassiopeia but it's it's pretty cool and you know for those of us who are familiar with the the pac-man uh video game it does uh, it does look like that and it was discovered by uh ee e. barnard who's sort of uh among the last great visual uh astronomers um uh, that was out there so that, that could be uh, a pretty neat uh nebula for people to to track down if you get to a, a reasonably dark site i it's sort of on my list to kind of kind of reobserve um this year it's it's a little bit it's a little bit faint though um you know because uh you know it is it is sort of a, a larger uh nebula up there and it's an h2 region and uh you know i think you will benefit from having like a like a uhc type uh nebula filter but you know when bernard discovered it he was just using i think his five inch uh refractor and and he found it in 1883 which is uh, before anybody was using uh, nebula filters, so he definitely, uh, you know, would uh, would have been challenged um, by his small aperture and and not having anything too too advanced. But I think it's about about as faint as uh, as M three is to see. Uh, if you use that nebula filter, I think you'll have a better shot at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, from what I remember of that, is is it is somewhat challenging. Um, 
trying to think what telescope I was using at the time or, or what telescope I viewed it through. But anyway, my, my memory escapes me as usual. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think I had, I think I had my best view of it through Mike's 12 inch. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's what I, what I was viewing it for, but, uh, through it for, but, uh, I think that, uh, maybe we, we had our telescopes on it as, as well. Um, an easier one up there though is, is M52, although, it's sort of to the to the north uh, northwest, a little bit of the main uh, Cassiopeia uh, star pattern. But uh, have you have you ever viewed M fifty two? And there's a whole pile of clusters and and nebulas uh, surrounding them. I'm not going to get into it, but that's a really fascinating region to explore. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely observed M fifty two, and uh, like Cassiopeia, kind of up in that area, is just rich with things to observe. Um, you know, I, I really encourage people just to spend like a full night under a dark sky observing things in Cassiopeia. And, and really, I think you could probably spend quite a few nights up just in that one constellation. And, and the neat thing is you, you get just such a wide range of objects from open clusters and globulars and nebula and uh, carbon stars and double stars. Like it, there's just so much to see up there. Yeah, there's some reflection nebula and mission nebula. I think there's even a handful of galaxies up there. I remember Mike was yeah. recently hunting some of those down. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And then on then on the other side, towards the southeast, um, sort of like kind of in that in that Milky Way band that runs from uh, that giant W of Cassiopeia down to Perseus, you get um, that heart and soul uh, region, which is which is kind of tough to see. I think you and I were trying to see that through, through my telescope. We sort of kind of sort of saw it as it was rising up. I think it was probably a little bit too low still when we were looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that one's tough. You, you need dark skies and or aperture. Yeah. But uh, you know, one, one cluster, and this is probably sort of like my favorite cluster. That's not really a popular cluster is that, Alpha Persei cluster, mm-hmm. which is basically off the the brightest star in Perseus. So you, you've spent quite a bit of time looking at this one too, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, that's one of my favorite things in the whole entire night sky to look at. Um, I I can spend probably almost an entire night just in that region. Um, you know, it, you start off with as wide of a field as you possibly have because it's a huge, huge span of sky that it covers. But then, you know, you increase the magnification and you start to see a number of doubles and um, different star colors. Uh, like there's just a lot to see in that, uh, in, in that area. And I, I think it also goes by Malat 20, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about, about that. The one thing I really like to do with, if we're at, I was doing some public observing last month. And um, I was showing people some clusters. I, I can't remember what open clusters I was showing them. Um, maybe it was like M11 might be a good example, the wild duck cluster, because it's it has a bright star in the center. And then it has um, all these sort of fainter stars scattered around. And I think what I did is I is I took people and had them look at uh, that through through like an eight inch telescope. I think we had there and we had some eights and tens. So it was one or the other. And uh, and then I sort of had them turn around because because M11 is in the uh, high in the in the southern sky right now for us. And then I had them sort of turn 180 degrees, kind of show them how the Milky Way comes from the south and goes up overhead and then comes down into that uh, north uh, northeastern zone. And uh, and then I said, and if you can find this bright star here and 
in uh, Perseus and show them Alpha Perseus. I said, now looking here, I'm in a very, very dark site. Um, you could actually see all these sort of faint stars around. And I sort of said, well, this is actually closer. Like think about that view you just had of, of the wild duck cluster with its bright star and sort of that faint scattering of stars. And, and the view of sort of the Alpha Perseus region. Now it's not identical. It does look a little bit different to your eye alone, but it's not dissimilar where you see this bright star. And then if you kind of have somebody tell you that that actually is an open cluster around it from the very dark site, um, you can see it's just like this super rich patch and people go, whoa, you know, like they're really surprised that they can see um, a really large open cluster. And then uh, for people there with with binoculars, had them just uh, point their binoculars to it and and take a view was uh, was really really cool. Uh, you know, just just to kind of even think about. You know, I'm not sure if, if you've ever tried anything like that before. Um, no, I don't think so. Actually, hmm. yeah, it's sort of a sort of a different way uh, of sort of looking at the sky. And then we have that double cluster up in Perseus as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the faint chain of stars that go, goes up to Trump. I think we had a pretty good view of it uh, recently here. Yeah. Yeah. Double cluster is phenomenal. That's another one of those beautiful objects that you start off with a wide field and you can spend a lot of time there because there's a lot of stars and uh, you know, more magnification reveals some again, doubles. And I can't remember if there's a lot of variance in star color, but you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful object. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There is quite a quite a lot of different uh, golden and blue stars in, in that region. Uh, it's really quite pretty. And then, um, you know, that's that's another one of those spots that even from a reasonably dark site like here, you, you can you can easily see that as a as a, a fuzzy spot, maybe even with some stars around it, just with your eye. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, that is an object that you can take a look at within, uh, you know, an urban area and, and still uh, enjoy it, although it does look far better under a dark sky. Yeah. And sort of coming across like that sort of, uh, sort of uh, get starting to get a little bit away from uh, that, that uh, square of Pegasus. But if you, if you come back across below Andromeda, you get to Aries. And have you ever done much observing in Aries before? No, no, I haven't. Like there's not a lot there. There's, um, I guess just above it, you know, around Triangulum, there's a little bit more, uh, obviously with M33, but um, no, not, not a lot of time in, in uh, Aries. Yeah. So around Aries is, I think it's one of those funny constellations where the alpha star is fainter than the uh the beta star um but if if you take uh, a pair of binoculars or a really small like like a 60 millimeter or smaller telescope with a with a really wide field of view um well if you go out under under a reasonably dark site you can actually see this this chain of stars that looks fuzzy to your eye that's uh sort of sitting just uh in the uh in the northeastern uh, part right above those two uh, bright alpha and beta stars in Aries. And so to your eye alone, they look like a fuzzy spot. And then to, uh, to your binoculars or super uh, low power wide field telescope, you'll see, uh, you'll see that this is a chain of stars. I think it includes the stars like 11 through 15 or 16 uh, Ariadis. Um, but these, 
these stars here, these are one of those um, patterns or asterisms that uh, have, have gone defunct, unfortunately, and sort of been forgotten about. But in early times, um, they, were, they were plotted and they were talked about. And this is, I think, why, although it's hard to find too many references to this, but I think this is why Aries is talked about as, as being this ram and having these horns, yet it just has one arc. And sort of the first arc, I guess, would be the horn um, that's very close to you and that you can see straight on. And then the other horn is maybe this fainter um, arc, almost looks like an arc of Milky Way there that you need a, that you need a binocular or something to actually view. So uh, I was kind of surprised uh, to see that as I was reading some old texts and I came across this business of this sort of uh, almost like the ghost horn or something. I don't know what to call it, but hmm. um, yeah, you can see those stars. Even if you're in the city or something, you can just take your binocular or small wide field telescope and point it at Aries and, uh, and see the, I'm just making this up right now, calling it sort of the ghost horn of Aries. <laughs> I don't know what to call it, but it's kind of cool. Like when you, when you see it, uh, the stars are quite pretty. Some of them are doubles. Um, and there's quite a few, there's quite a few stars there. And it's, it's one of those things that here we have a constellation and through, uh, if you have a pair of opera glasses, like you, you and I have some low power opera glasses, you can get the whole constellation in the field of view. And then you can see, um, this sort of other asterism of stars. I don't think the stars are related. So they're, you know, in, in a way, not a scientific value, but, um, there is some, uh, historical, uh, references there. Hmm, that's pretty interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. And, and the one thing that's, that's in the, in the back of my, I keep meaning to look this up a little bit better is I think that that, um, that ghostly pattern uh, may have also been referred to as the golden fleece at, at one point. Um, there is, I forget what, what, what that reference is to. It might be in Hinkley Allen's book or maybe the Bedford catalog or something, but I think that uh, that they talk about that potentially as the golden fleece uh, of the night sky. So, because it sort of maybe has uh, a golden shimmer to it, maybe better vision than I do under under a really dark sight. And I know that some of those stars are golden in color. So, sort of a, a neat historical fact. Yeah, for sure. So there is one for you for you to look at to go back to Aries and and try to make out that second uh, horn. Um, Moving across now, the front of Aries kind of has a has a bit of a point uh, to it, just off that point into Pisces, um, coming off. Um, you know, it's very near the star. One hundred five uh, Piscium is the uh, is the M seventy four galaxy. I'm not sure if if you've ever hunted that one down. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I've I've observed all of the Messiers and. Uh, you know, I don't remember M74 as being too substantial or, or amazing, um, but I don't, uh, I'd have to look at my notes. It, it's definitely a decent size. Um, anyway, carry on. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's neat because um, it's, uh, I think it has a pretty tight core on it. Mm. Um you know, it's one of those ones that uh, at first, when when you look, you're gonna you're gonna see that it, uh, it you know, it, it, it's it's just looking like a star. But then, as you sort of look longer through your small telescope, um, it is, uh, it, you know, it is it is actually a bit of a, a nebula there. I find that's pretty small for uh, for a, a little telescope, though. 
um, but it is tight. So you can use some, some significant power on there to kind of pull out the sort of ethereal galaxy that, uh, that kind of lies in and around that, that um, bright nucleus uh, of that galaxy. So yeah, it's kind of neat. Um, that's the one that kind of dogged me for doing the Messi marathon, because I think it's like setting or something when, when we're trying to do the Messi marathon in March. And yeah, I kind of struggled through that one to get that one, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we did eventually get it one of those nights in March. Yeah. Right cool. Have you ever tried the Messi marathon in March? You ever done one of those? No, no, I've never really been intrigued enough to do it. Uh, I know it, you know, it captivates a lot of astronomers, but um, I just, uh, you know, I like to actually look at an object and, and try to, you know, see as much as I can rather than just racing through the night sky. And, and I really feel like, you know, the Messier list is a race and, uh, I'm not speaking ill of anyone that enjoys it. It's just, it's never really appealed to me for those reasons. Yeah. I, I tried it like when I was first getting going and yeah, I think we, we did like 103 objects one night. That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty much as many as you can get from like our Northern, uh, latitudes. Um, and again, like, yeah, you're right. You're just racing through and you're just kind of checking them off the list. And to, to be honest, I kind of find a lot of the time people do that maybe a little bit too much in astronomy anyway. And, you know, they, they just sort of race through the objects without really, really sitting there and looking at them, uh, as much, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, sort of a, a neat thing. Um, if you follow your way up Pisces though, Gonna gonna throw one at you here. This this is sort of like one of my new favorite objects that I I started observing about six or eight years ago. Um, right off of Alpha Piscium is uh, is an asterism called Renault eighteen, and there's a few brighter stars, and then there's this uh, grouping of stars. And why I like this is I just I really like it when there's something either at the end of a chain of stars or in amongst um, a a bright set of stars that you can see with your eye. It just seems like sometimes you, you just, you're like, Oh, that's a really neat spot in the sky. I wonder if there's anything there. And I pointed my telescope there as did many um, ancient astronomers when they were first getting telescopes and there actually is something there. And it's called eventually it it came to be known as uh, Renault 18 as an asterism um, rate to the, uh, east of Alpha Piscium, which, which is the northern brightest star in Pisces. It's just on the uh, Andromeda border. It's actually only about five, maybe five or six degrees to the, um, to the west of uh, M33. So it's, it's a pretty easy spot to find. M33, most of us can find that coming off um, the triangle of triangulum. And then, uh, uh, just to the right, uh, the brightest star to the right of Triangulum is Alpha Piscium. And then right next to that uh, is this Renault uh, 18. Now, there's a, there's a few brighter stars there that you can actually see with your eye. Um, but uh, but through, a, through a little telescope, like a 60 millimeter or larger, you can actually see there's, there's a pretty good little grouping of stars. But they're not related. Again, it's not of astronomical or scientific significance, apparently. But... Uh, but it is for, uh, for historical purposes. Hmm. Yeah. I'm reading the asterism looks like the letter S from Superman. So like the Superman logo S, um, when viewed through large yeah. telescopes. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first person who ever really cataloged it was, uh, was GB Hodierna. 
back in the uh, uh, sort of mid uh, 1600s, and he was using like a Galileo or Galileo uh, actual Galileo telescope um, to observe the night sky. And the way that they would observe is they would go out and they would look for fuzzy spots, and then they would, they would point the telescopes at the fuzzy spots, and, and then and then describe what they what they saw. And he uh, he did just that. He he noticed that there was a fuzzy spot near Alpha Piscium, and then he uh, he sort of drew this. And it's kind of neat. Like it's it's a rich part of the sky. It's uh, it's not too far from the Milky Way, but we really don't think of sort of northern Pisces as as being a rich Milky Way zone, but uh, but that spot is definitely uh, a rich Milky Way spot. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I I never heard of this one. Yeah, and again, you can probably see it from your backyard when the moon's not out. So I'm giving you giving you a few objects to take a look at this fall. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So in in Triangle, so we're going back to, to M33, we had a pretty good view of that the other night uh, there a couple of weeks back and put my uh, my nebula filters in. And um, you find M33, which is the Triangulum Galaxy or the Messier 33 Galaxy. And you, it's one of the brightest, nearest uh, galaxies to us. It's sort of like when you think about large, bright galaxies that are nearby, it's sort of second only to a uh, big group around Andromeda. And... Uh, you find it by just coming off the pointy tip of the Triangulum galaxy, sort of right between um, the pointy tip of Triangulum and kind of Beta Andromeda and sort of like almost sits just south of the, of that uh, sort of midpoint there. And um, yeah, it's, you know, some people have reported seeing that with their naked eye. I don't know that I've ever really seen it with my naked eye. I kind of maybe thought I did. Have you ever seen it naked eye? I don't think so. I don't know. I, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but you can see it with binoculars and definitely like in, in the small telescopes with a, with a nebula filter, you can, you can see it with, uh, uh, you can see that there's like a large star forming H2 region uh, there. Very cool. Anyway, that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's sort of another, another neat one to see. And then, uh, back up in Pegasus, sort of looking uh, back up there um, in the north, uh, well, sort of like in the, more on the, I guess the uh, eastern side of it is, is Messi 15. I'm not sure if you've ever looked at that. That's that globular cluster that's actually a little bit closer to Delphinus than it is to like that main square pattern of, uh, of Perseus itself. Yeah. Yeah. M15 is uh, a neat object. And, um, you know, well positioned here in the fall sky for us. Coming down from there, one of my favorite asterisms is the water jar of uh, of Aquarius. I'm not sure um, what that pattern is exactly. It almost looks like somebody cut one of the spindles off of you know, like jacks from a game of jacks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It almost looks like somebody just cut a spindle off and stepped on it or something. I, I don't know what to call it, but it's it's sort of an unmistakable pattern that uh, that once you see it, you you can't unsee it. And and again, you can actually get that whole pattern in uh, in anything with a, with a three and a half or four degree field of view. So even in my hundred millimeter refractor, my lowest power will show the the whole uh, the whole of that uh, asterism there, which is pretty neat. Hmm. I'll have to add that to the list as well. 
And then if we continue on just a little bit to the uh, west from there, you actually get to uh, M2, which is another globular cluster. Um, and I think it's probably one of the best globular clusters next to like M15 and M13 and M22. I think it's right up there. And uh, you actually can use the, the stars in that asterisk to point um, to it, if you kind of keep on that same track of the center center stars that are pretty straight, you kind of keep tracking to the uh, to the west uh, using those stars as as a bit of a line. If you have a wide enough field of view, you'll just run uh, right across uh, M two from there. I think it's about maybe six or seven degrees uh, towards the west from there. That, that's how I find it anyway. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good way to get there. And then coming down, one thing um, that, that they've done in, in, I guess, recent history is they've changed the pattern of Aquarius, which I, which I disagree with. It kind of looks like there's like a central um, hub there now from, the, uh, from, from this water jar. And then it sort of has these two paddles on either side. But the original constellation had um, this uh, flowing water that kind of is attached by, I think there's, I think it's three sets of three stars that kind of arc down, they kind of come out of the water jar and they slowly flow uh, towards the um, east. And then they kind of slowly down uh, to the south and, and, and west a little bit. And then they kind of wrap around a little bit and they end at uh, Pisces Ostrinus. Um, which is marked by the bright star Fomalo, which is right on the uh, southern horizon for us, uh, sort of in in the mid uh, autumn. And that's a that's a pretty bright star. That's one of those stars when you go out, you think, is that an airplane or is that a star coming at us? Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and what's neat about that uh, that set of uh, stars is that um, if you're if you're out in autumn and you think about that set of three. Uh, three stars. So there's three uh, sets of these three stars, and they're more or less equal in, in, in brightness. Um, if if the sky is unstable, they kind of appear to twinkle a little bit, and almost does look like the water is maybe flowing a bit. Sort of as as the as the water sort of flows across, they kind of they kind of twinkle a bit. But if if you keep uh, jogging past, sort of if you keep following that flow towards the um, west a little bit. Um, instead of just sort of stopping at those three stars, um, eventually you'll come to uh, the Helix Nebula, which is sort of like our final stop for the day. And I don't know, the, the Helix Nebula was one of those very, um, you know, off messy objects that I that I first found. I never really observed the uh, the anything other than a messy object, and then decided to take a look at the Helix one night and. Uh, you know, was just blown away by how large and, and round this planetary nebula is. I'm not sure if you remember your first, first view of the helix. Yeah, it, it really is surprising. Like you, you observe a lot of this stuff up there. And like you say, it, it, you kind of get used to a lot of the size of these objects and there's not, there's not many things as large as the helix or M33 or M31. So when you see some of these larger objects, it, it can be a little, a little shocking. Yeah. And, you know, the helix is faint. You can still see it in your binoculars, but I kind of think it's almost best to follow this, this route of observation where you go from, um, you know, some, some galaxies and clusters and, and nebula that are high up and, 
much easier to see down to uh, this object, which is, uh, uh, has a very low surface brightness. And really, um, you want to try your, your UHC and O3 filters uh, on, on this one. And uh, what you're looking at, though, when you look at the helix stand, but this is a star that's like our sun that has expired. And uh, it's gradually giving off its, uh, its shells in, into space. And that's that's really what we're what we're seeing here. But I think it's actually the closest one to our to our solar system, if I'm recalling correctly. Or 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 can you correct me on that one, Shane? Uh, I cannot confirm nor deny your allegation. Uh, <laughs> I am not very good at remembering all those details of distances and partic well, particularly distances. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know the distance to any of the stuff like in light years, but I I think I recall it's uh, it, anyway. It's it's among the top, um, uh, you know, as far as the closest uh, planetary nebulas uh, go, and and certainly uh, well worth hunting down. You when you get to a dark site or a reasonably dark site on these uh, autumn nights, uh, that definitely is at the top of of my list to uh, to take uh, to take a look at. So that that's kind of a bit of a tour of the of the autumn sky. Uh, is there anything you're really looking forward to uh, observing this this autumn chain? Um, no, not well, I shouldn't say no. Um, I'm continuing with my projects that I've been working on for a while, which is, um, uh, the RASC double star list as well as, um, uh, Omira's hidden treasure book. Um, so, uh, under dark skies, that's what I'll be looking for. And, um, you know, mixing in some of the classics like M31 and, uh, the alpha Persei uh, cluster, you know, double cluster, all that kind of stuff that we just talked about. I'll, I'll sprinkle those into the observing sessions as well. Cool. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, unless you have anything else to add, uh, I'll thank you for joining me and thank everybody uh, for listening to us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>